You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. You know, without Richard Milhouse Nixon, I probably wouldn't be right here. You wouldn't have uh, been interested in me or my memoirs. He propelled all of us at the Post onto the public stage. Former Washington Post editor Ben Bradley. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Fifty years ago this week, a group of burglars broke into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in Washington, D.C. They were sent there by and were paid by operatives working for the re-election of President Richard M. Nixon. They were there to spy on the DNC. Those DNC offices were in a Washington office complex known simply as the Watergate. That's where a security guard found them and caught them. Now, the story could have died there. It may have been successfully covered up were it not for the relentless pursuit of the story by two young reporters for the Washington Post, Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. They, along with the backing of their editor Ben Bradley and the Washington Post publisher Catherine Graham, pursued this story and finally unraveled the political scandal that became known simply as Watergate, which culminated in the resignation of President Nixon in 1974. Watergate permanently changed the face of American politics and journalism. So this week, each episode of Now I've Heard Everything focuses on my interviews with one or another figures from the Watergate scandal. On Wednesday, my interviews with former Nixon White House counsel John Dean, who was at the very center of the conspiracy and the cover-up. Then on Friday, my conversation with the man often called the mastermind of the burglary, former FBI agent and Nixon operative G. Gordon Liddy. But first, in today's episode, the renowned and iconic Washington Post editor, Ben Bradley. Now, he took over the Post in 1965, in the midst of the Civil Rights Movement, the Vietnam War, turbulence, and a changing face of American journalism. And while Watergate may be what Ben Bradley is best known for now, it was certainly not the only big story that he was at the center of during his tenure at the Post. I met him in 1995, when he wrote his autobiography, a book called A Good Life. So here now, from 1995, Ben Bradley. How did you decide the time was right to write this book? Well, I've been out of the city room for four years. Uh, I've been uh, writing a book for three and a half of those. And uh, I found it hard to write. Uh, I used to make a pretty good living writing. And then they made me an editor. And editors write write in short bursts. They write rewrite. They write leads. They rewrite he uh, headlines. And uh, I, w I got out of practice. And it's hard to write about yourself if you're really going to be honest. I was going to say, there's a fundamental so difference really that strikes me. And newspaper men are told to, to, that they don't use the first person singular, and you can't write a book about yourself if you don't. Told this reporter. Uh, yeah, well, this reporter <laughs> has reason to believe. Or, or the source mentioned to a reporter. Uh, yeah. That's uh, the yeah. <laughs> euphuisms that are not very good or bright. But it's, it certainly looks to me like once you got into the swing of it, it was hard to stop you. Yeah, well, I, I had a good time, and, and I, uh, I was determined to be honest and to tell, the, tell it the way it was, and I did. You, you know, what you just said just now really describes, I felt like you had a good time writing this. I did. Well, I had a good time in my life. I found that it, uh, you know, like Red Smith, the old sports writer, said, writing is easy, it's just open your veins and bleed. <laughs> but um, 
there were times that it was very hard and times that uh, that it was just a delight to to write about it. I have had a good life. I've had a very good time and I've been uh, blessed with uh, with fantastic bosses. I mean, don't let anybody tell you that the key to a good editor is anything else but a good owner. <laughs> Did it surprise you in any way when you looked at the totality of your life, your career, the things that you'd done, the places you'd been, the people? Yeah. Well, I knew that I'd been there, but but uh, when I put it all down, it uh, it uh, impressed me again that, uh, that I had been dealt a great hand. You know, I mean, I had uh, I had an interesting neighbor who became president of the United States. I had uh, uh, a real wonderful uh, Washington. The, my colleagues at the Post were were so good, and uh, we brought us the Pentagon Papers. And Catherine Graham had the guts to to say, "Go ahead and print them." Um, I, I, you know, I got a wonderful assignment as a foreign correspondent for Newsweek, and I went to wars in the Middle East and wars in North Africa, and I covered conferences, and I ate good food, and I met a lot of interesting people. Your timing seems to be marvelous <coughs> at so many points in your life where you seem to be uncannily in the right place yeah. at the right time. I was a kid in this kid reporter in this town on the trolley going down Pennsylvania Avenue, uh, right in front of the White House. Um, I suppose most of your listeners will forget that was a trolley. Uh, when uh, a man called Oscar Calazzo, a Puerto Rican, opened fire on Blair House trying to kill President Truman and killed a uh, White House guard called uh, Lester Cofield instead. But I was in that uh, I was in that trolley. I mean, incredible luck. I'm, I'm the only person you know who has crawled on his hands and knees across Pennsylvania Avenue sober. <laughs> <laughs> just, it, there is an incredible wealth of stories in this book. I've, I, you could you could practically just uh, just by using the index and look up to see. Well, let's look up the story about this one. Let's look yeah. up the story about this. There are many different ways to read this book. You can either read it from front to back or just picking out the nuggets. You tell wonderful stories. Well, you know I, that. That's what uh, that's what reporters do. They they're storytellers. News is a, is a storytelling in its way. You've got to make them. Uh, you've got to try to make them interesting, uh, and uh, be try to make them relevant. You do that in radio as much as uh, we do it in print. Um, I, you know, I've been at it in a long time. Are too. you a natural born storyteller? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I like it, and I've been doing it for 74 years, so uh, uh, I, I guess if I'm not natural-born, I'm, I'm getting good at it. <laughs> That's true. I, I, one of the anecdotes that struck me, and I've been retelling it all afternoon, is the only time, that, according to your, your book, the only time that you ever in your career said, stop the presses. I did, <laughs> I did it once. It was the night that Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. And it was 3 o'clock in the morning, uh, which is, uh, uh, you know, we were all still down at the paper because it was the night of the California primary in 1964, uh, 68. And uh, it was a key primary. If Bobby Kennedy had uh, beaten um, that night, if he beat uh, Gene McCarthy that night, it was generally considered that he was going to be the, uh, so the candidate. So we were all down there. And uh, at 3 o'clock is very near the end of the Washington Post run. I mean, we've been running presses since uh, probably uh, 10.45 or 10.30, so, and we're generally through at 4 or 4.05 or something like that. 
So we wanted to uh, stop the presses and uh, put out a new paper, which was kind of, in, in a sense, you could have called it silly because television and radio have ruined the extra. There is no extra now. And by the time we got it out, it was already so dated because all the networks were on the air with, uh, and the radio, of course, had uh, had uh, beaten television to it. So, uh, but anyway, we felt that that's, that's what a newspaper people should do. We still felt that way. Now I don't think we did. We would do it anymore. I can't imagine a, an event that would force us into a, a, an extra. But what I thought was the, the, cute, the kicker to the story was when you said stop the presses, they didn't immediately stop. You know, we had a button in those days, <laughs> which was... Uh, which in one of the various remodelings of the Washington Post had been unconnected. So uh, the, my voice was, I was in very good voice. I shouted it, and somebody called down to the press room and said, uh, you know, the editors just had to stop the press. And eventually they stopped, you know, maybe a couple of minutes later. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't all that serious because, uh, you know, you stop them, you stop them. After this short break, how Watergate changed everything for Ben Bradley and the Post. Back to my 1995 conversation with Ben Bradley. In your foreword, in amongst all the, the usual suspects that you would normally expect to find thanked in a foreword like this, you thank Richard Milhouse Nixon. Well, you know, without Richard Milhouse Nixon, I probably wouldn't be right here. You wouldn't have uh, been interested in me or my memoirs. Maybe you would have, and maybe, but maybe I wouldn't have written them. You know, he, he propelled all of us at the Post. You know, onto the public stage, and we became uh, public figures. When we, when uh, Redford wanted to make a movie about Watergate, we asked our lawyer, who was Joe Califano, uh, to uh, to research the law and tell him that we were we were private figures, and he couldn't use our name, couldn't even use the the name of the Washington Post. And uh, he reported back to us in a couple of days that we were crazy. We were out of our minds. We were public figures by any definition. And that was a big change in journalism. That wasn't true. I mean, people who, who people can't remember the name of my predecessor, who was a fantastic editor and a fantastic journalist and a man of the highest principle and a really wonderful man. But he stayed. He was allowed to stay in the audience. And I'm not saying it's bad, but it's different, and it has it has problems connected with it. Is it again just a matter of being in the right place at the right time for you uh, in in that particular case? Uh, well, yeah, and it's having having uh, somebody, some real crazy nut, decide that he'd send five uh, Spanish-speaking uh, people in in dark glasses and rubber gloves and uh, walkie-talkies, uh, and. Um, you know, brand new crisp hundred dollar bills in their pockets down to the Democratic National Committee. I didn't have anything to do. I didn't send them there, but when they when we found them there, uh, we had the right team to put on it and uh, develop it into the story of the generation. Oh, do you know how many young people you brought into the business <laughs> with that story? Yeah, well, you know, not me, and how many people Nixon brought into the business with that story. True, but it has changed. He got Nixon. The Post didn't get Nixon. But it has changed everything about journalism and yeah, politics. Yeah. Well, the Post's role, really, 
for, I mean, it's already so long ago, but you know, it's 23 years ago uh, and more, was to really focus the, the, uh, the country's attention on it almost alone for six or seven months. Then after, the, after uh, Judge Sirica got a hold of it and after uh, James McCord revealed his CIA connections and after um, Senator Irvin and the Senate hearings and after this, especially after the tapes, uh, I mean, uh, nobody could have stopped that story then. I, I, I dare say, though, that in terms of the people in the Washington area anyway, Watergate is very important, but that style section, that's what's really important. Yeah. Well, that's a great section, isn't it? I, mean, I love the style section. It was section. a new concept. of uh, It really was. And, and uh, you know, I, I suspect that, that that may be remembered longer than the than uh, Watergate. The, the, uh, you're too young, but to remember how the, 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 that was known as the women's pages, and it was called For and About Women. And the uh, the foreign about was written in a sort of a very, uh, I guess, feminine scroll, and uh, it had stories after stories about uh, the the wife of the secretary of the state and uh, some ambassador in his native robes on a national day, and uh, it had stories about uh, coiffuring and stories <laughs> about cooking and stories about uh, this. I mean, it was boring. Had some good stories. The, the gossip columns were always good, and, and it used to be said that you could get a lot of news stories out of the Post Society columns. Mm-hmm. Now, you do also address very frankly the, the, in some cases, open racism that that prevailed well, at the Post when you when you first became managing editor. Well, look, the 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 Post and all Americans institutions were not sensitive to race. If that made them racist, so be it. I admit to that. And uh, the thing that the Post does, it seems to me, that has done, that seems to be good, was address it. We didn't address it quickly enough. We didn't address it uh, intelligently enough, but we addressed it. And we are now, uh, you know, we have, uh, uh, I think, at least when I left there, the the, uh, highest number of of, uh, minority employees and uh, and the highest number in responsible positions, and we're the greatest recruiting ground for black employees in the uh, in in the country. So, but we were we were all late on that. There's no there's no way of denying it. We sh- we just have got to face it up and fix it. Well, also uh, you were faced in in eighty one with the Janet Cook incident. Janet something Cook else that you had to face and address well, quickly. And yeah, that has been a. Uh, I, I think I learned that from Richard Nixon too. That uh, uh, that if you uh, get in trouble, uh, there's no point in denying it, and there's no point in covering it up. That is to face it and to exorcise it with the truth. The 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 world doesn't know a damn thing about Janet Cook that the Washington Post didn't tell them, and I'm proud of that. I'm not proud of very much in that incident, but I'm proud of that. It's it's a very different place now than it was 30 years ago, isn't it? Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> well, this town is, and, and the country is. You know, there is a, the Vietnam, it seems to me, and uh, followed by Watergate, uh, then produced the counterculture, which, uh, which uh, really changed the face of America. The young people who are protesting the war and smoking all that dope and uh, and uh, uh, 
presiding over changed sexual mores really changed the country. They changed institutions. You, um, I remember, I remember when somebody uh, somebody sold somebody else a joint on the in the city room, and I was absolutely stunned. I never smoked a joint. I didn't know. I guess I had smoked one in Europe, but <laughs> but uh, I said this can't happen, and uh, we fired the poor guy, and probably would have fired him anyway. But but it, it I say it only how to show how. How revolutionary the changes were. There were a lot of changes. Ben Bradley died in 2014. He was 93. And you can find easy Amazon links to Ben Bradley's books at our website, HeardEverything.com. And while you're at HeardEverything.com, be sure to listen to my interviews with two other iconic journalists who've given presidents fits. My 2004 conversation with renowned UPI White House correspondent Helen Thomas. There I am, you know, really a thorn in their side. They know I'm going to try to ask the tough questions. I say, Mr. President, and I say, thank you. What more do they want? And my 1987 talk with former ABC White House correspondent Sam Donaldson. You come to think of the television correspondent who's bringing you the bad news in someone's administration who you love as being an enemy. And then who brings you the good news if you hate that person as being a cheerleader for the team. And, of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, he was the White House counsel under President Nixon, but eventually John Dean helped bring down the Nixon presidency. My 2006 and 2007 conversations with John Dean. If national security and the powers of the commander-in-chief had been where they are today during the Nixon presidency, he could have easily gone to the Senate during Watergate and said, I'm not going to turn this information over to you for national security reasons. I'm at war in Vietnam and defend himself. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.